0: Father, we open up your word again this morning in our desire to find truth. Father, we live in a world that offers us truth, it says, from so many different directions and so many sources. Truth, Father, that is worldly. Truth, Father, that is relative. Truth, Father, that is self-serving. Truth, Father, that is no truth at all. And we come in here this morning, Lord, because we know that the book you've prepared over centuries of time and over hundreds and thousands of lives, the book we hold before us, Father, your word, is the source of truth. And we've come, Father, to study it because we desire to know your truth, the only truth. We pray, Father, that our hearts would have that kind of expectation, that we would be open, Father, to your truth, that if we would not see it, Father, as merely another source, Another opportunity to hear an opinion, one more perspective to add to the thousands we bring with us from countless sources, but Father, we look at it as the one true and only source of knowledge, of revelation, of love. And because, Father, we know it to be that, we come with an open mind and an open heart willing to put aside any preconceived notion, willing to put aside any thought we carried into this room from another source, because, Father, there is no other source of truth but the one you've provided. And we glorify you for it. We thank you for it. And we thank you even now for your Son, who in his life here on earth lived out that truth, Father, gave us a visible example of what your truth would be if it were to be in all of us all the time. How we desire, Father, to reflect that truth as Jesus did so perfectly And we cannot do it in our own power. We do not come here this morning, Father, with an expectation that simply by the knowledge of what we hear in the pages before us, we will somehow in our own abilities step out from this room and live it out. Were that possible, Father, then we would not need you. We would not need the Holy Spirit. We could do it on our own. But, Father, how wrong that would be. We know, Father, we do not have the power to act on anything we read. We do not even have the power, Father, to understand it apart from how your Holy Spirit may choose to reveal it to us. and We come this morning, Father, desiring revelation, desiring the power to live it out, and desiring an opportunity to serve you in those things. We thank you, Lord, that you've gathered us for this purpose. We pray your will would be done. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Luke, chapter 10. We started chapter 10 last week. Now, if you remember, we spent the better part of six weeks in chapter 9. Well, I've got good news for you. We're actually going to finish chapter 10 today. So, two weeks in chapter 10 is an improvement. I think I should get credit for that. Uh, And in fact, that's a bit of a lie because we'll we'll read all the way through chapter 10 today. We'll actually come back into it a little bit next week and continue some exposition on the last series of, of verses. But we will read it through today. So, we'll pick up where we left off in about verse 17. Last week, we saw Jesus send out 70 messengers at the beginning of this chapter, and he sent them out with very specific instructions. The principal purpose, of course, was to declare the kingdom, to declare the, the arrival of the kingdom of God in the form of Christ himself, ready to reign on earth, were he to be accepted by the nation of Israel for that purpose. And as we open up in Luke today, in about verse 17, we're going to look at the joy of these men as they return from this mission. And Jesus, we're going to see, feeds that excitement. He actually encourages that excitement and gives them encouragement and rejoices with them in the work that they've performed. Let's look at this passage now in chapter 10, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent And revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. As we pause there, if you look back a few verses in this text from where we read today, you'll remember Jesus' instructions to these men when he sent out the 70. For example, in verses 8, 9, in 10, we read last week that Jesus gave instruction on how they were to respond to rejection. When they came into a town and were rejected, here is what I want you to do. And we read that last week. And as we read those verses last week, they would no doubt have left us, I, I certainly left me with this impression, I assume they would have left you with a similar impression, that these messengers were not going to find much success. I mean, think about it. If you give somebody a task and you give them specific instructions, but you spend most of your time talking to them about what they're going to do when they fail, when the message is not heard, when they're not received well, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. well, if you're one of those messengers and you set out on that mission, you have to begin to wonder, how much confidence should I have in what I'm about to go do? I mean, after all, the one who sent me just spent most of his time telling me about how to address my failure, So it would seem as though Jesus' expectation was that they would go out and they would fail to some degree, at least fail in the sense that they would not convert everyone they talked to. And so I think that's a safe assumption. In fact, I think it's probably a safe assumption that they did, in fact, encounter relatively unreceptive audiences. To some degree, they probably did not convince a lot of people. We know that just from the fact that Jesus is ultimately crucified. He is not embraced by the population. But now look at how they respond here in in the verses we read this morning. They come in, it says, with joy. Basically celebrating in the success of their ministry. We're told they return with joy. They exclaim that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. What they mean here, of course, is that They were given the power by the Holy Spirit to cast out demons, and they were amazed at that experience, at the ability to do that. And who wouldn't be, right? I mean, if you were told specifically, do this, do this, do this, and you will have command over demons, and you do it and it works, you're still going to come back amazed that it actually did work, that you were actually able to do it. And from the sound of their statement, I assume that when they went out in the way that Jesus sent them out, they did, in fact, find themselves empowered to do a lot of amazing things. He told them, cast out demons, heal the sick, proclaim the kingdom. My guess is they were amazed at all three. They were amazed, obviously, of being able to control demons to some degree. They were certainly amazed at the ability to provide supernatural healing. That would also be an amazing thing. But I would also argue they were amazed that their message found a receptive audience, because really it was a fairly unconvincing kind of, of statement. Jesus is the Messiah, this itinerant preacher that wanders around from town to town. He's the new king. How does this work? But the sense from the text here, when you really look at it in its full context, it's sort of like that of a child with a new toy. A child who's suddenly excited over a discovery of some power, some ability, some new gift, or in this case, obviously, a supernatural ability to cast out demons. There's obvious joy in the opportunity in the availability of this ministry to join God in this way. Hey, I can be like a foot soldier now in God's army, zapping the bad guys, you know, casting out demons. There's a, there's a sense of that here for me. And that is what they're joyful about. But let's keep this in perspective. They had plenty of failures. I think that's also evident from the text. They would have found maybe a few that accepted the message, but largely they didn't find many. And knowing what we know about the nation of Israel and how they rejected Jesus, rejected their Messiah, we can only assume that they were probably kicked out of some towns, they were probably spat upon, they were probably turned away from in various ways, called names, who knows what. And they still come back with this excitement and this joy, coming back to celebrate their success. But I would tell you that whatever their successes were in ministry, they were primarily interested, they are prim- primarily excited over the fact that they were able to defeat the enemy, And when we serve the Lord in this way, when we ultimately join in battle against the enemy in some way, whatever way God calls us, we're going to experience probably a similar degree of joy when we find success. But these messengers mentioned an important detail that explained their success, and it's one we should keep in mind as well when we talk about our own opportunity to succeed in ministry. They said that they found the enemy subject to them, As they ministered in the name of the Lord, as they ministered in Jesus' name, they were able to find some measure of success against the enemy. And that's what they came back excited about. And you may have heard me teach on this before. If you heard my series, I Taught at Castle Hills on the Sovereignty of God, you'll remember that there was a point in one evening when I talked about how the scriptures mean speaking in the name of the Lord, declaring something in the name of the Lord, doing work of ministry in the name of Jesus. I want to go back through that just for a moment here today because it comes into play here again in these verses. When we say doing something in the name of the Lord, praying in the name of Jesus, asking for something in prayer in the name of Jesus, casting out a demon in the name of Jesus, Scripture means that in a very specific sense. It is simply not using the name of Jesus like some incantation. As if I say the words in a special order, throw his name in there, suddenly that statement gains supernatural ability by virtue of having his name stuck in there. I think Hollywood has sort of encouraged that view in our minds. There was a movie many years ago, I remember seeing it as a kid, don't necessarily recommend it now, but uh, The Exorcist. And in that movie there's this poor, frazzled priest who's been called upon to exorcise a demon, and his whole approach is one of, essentially, superstition. At least it's how it's how it's portrayed in the movie. Hold the cross up, say the name of Jesus, do something with candles, and suddenly those are the things that are going to affect the demonic realm. Let me tell you, folks, they laugh at that. They laugh at our superstitious use of those symbols. In the time of Jesus, in the day and in the place of the gospel message, the term using the name of somebody had a very specific connotation. It was a legal issue. It was legal. It was something like what we would have today in the form of a power of attorney. If you know what a power of attorney is, it's a legal document that grants somebody else legal authority over the affairs of another person. So I could sign a power of attorney and give my father, for example, uh, authority over my legal affairs. He could act as if he were me. Anything I could do legally with my own money or with my own affairs, if he has a power of attorney, he can do the same thing. It's a way of transferring my legal authority over myself to somebody else. And in that culture, when I said I was speaking in the name of somebody, it was to say I have their legal authority to act on their behalf, in their place, as if they were standing here themselves doing what I'm doing. And therefore, you must respect what I'm asking for, because it's effectively being asked by the person I'm speaking for. And if that person has authority, if they're a king, for example, then their own authority is present in the moment with me because I'm speaking on their behalf. I have that authority to use. And when Jesus says we speak on behalf of him in his name, it means we have understood that the Holy Spirit has taught us that God has given us Christ's authority for some purpose in some moment. If we are aware of that, if he's made that known to us, and we're confident that that is in fact what has happened, the Holy Spirit has spoken to us about that, I have the freedom in a moment to cast out a demon from somebody because God has told me I have his authority to act in his name in that moment, then it will work because it is not my power, it is his working through me. On the other hand, if I take that authority onto myself without God having given it to me, without the Holy Spirit having communicated to me, if I simply do it of my own fleshly desire whether it's for good reasons or not, whether there's a good intention behind it or not, is irrelevant. I don't have the ability to conjure up God's power like a genie in a bottle and zap somebody with it anytime I want just because I use a certain phrase. He's God, we're not. He has that power. He gives it to whom he wants, when he wants. We don't have the ability to take it on demand. And scripture never gives us that authority. It never encourages us to do that. It shows, on the other hand, times when men are empowered to do it given specific direction to do it, and then they do it, and in doing it, God is glorified. Where did these 70 men get their ability to cast out demons? Under specific commissioning from Jesus who sent them out and told them they would have that authority to do what they did. Now they've come back and they're rejoicing over having found success in that work that God gave them to do, and they should rejoice in it. After all, that's what they were sent out to do. We likewise have that same responsibility When commissioned, when directed, we should act boldly with an expectation that God would work through us. When we lack that official, if you will, commissioning, then we ought to be careful about presuming too much about what God plans to do through us, because obviously, if we have presumed too much, we will fail, and our failure will be shown as our own arrogance, frankly. Maybe just our own ignorance in some cases, but in either case... God will not be controlled by his creation. He will act according to his will, not ours. So how do we know the difference? Maybe that's the question we would have on the forefront of our mind. When do I know that I've been commissioned in this way and when I am not? When do I know, for example, that the enemy is being subject to me in the name of the Lord? When would I know that the enemy is going to obey my command in the name of Jesus If, in fact, I've been given that power. Well, look at the messenger's reaction. First of all, their joy is clearly visible. They've seen the power of God acting through them. There's a certain amount of confirmation, if you will, just in their very nature and their very reaction to the work God gave them to do. There's no doubt. They're not walking around wondering if it's going to work. They're rejoicing in the fact that it will work and that it did work. They've seen the enemy retreat. They've seen their success, in other words. In other words, the proof is in the pudding, as the phrase goes. And so if they had been acting presumptuously, if they had gone out and thinking they have more power than they really had, they wouldn't have succeeded. They certainly wouldn't have been rejoicing here. Likewise, if we go out with a mistaken expectation that God's going to work through us and it doesn't happen, that's the first sign that we should see to stop, to consider whether or not we've gone off on the wrong track. In other words, trying is not the fault. Trying is not to be considered uh, worthy of blame or condemnation. We often get things wrong. We often assume God has told us to do one thing. Turns out later we got it wrong. He was really directing us a different way. We've all had that experience. There's no shame in stepping out in the wrong way. There is shame in persisting after it's become clear that we're wrong. When men see themselves failing in something they presume to have power to do, they ought to take a step back and ask themselves if maybe their presumption was wrong. We, on the other hand, should be discerning and ask ourselves, am I looking at someone who's truly working in the power of the Holy Spirit, or am I looking at someone who has claimed more power than they truly have? When we act presumptuously, we'll find out when our power is lacking. In Acts 19.13, there's a famous story many of you have heard of a man who did exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, a group of men, a group of brothers. I'll read you four verses out of Acts 19:13. Also, some of the Jewish Jewish exorcists, and an exorcist, by the way, is someone who casts demons out. Some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempting to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, all right, you see what they're doing here, right? They're walking around trying to cast out demons, doing exactly what we just talked about, using this phrase, in the name of Jesus. In fact, they're so clearly not aware of who Jesus is, they say, Jesus, you know, that one that Paul preaches about. He said, they, they're going around doing this, and in verse 14, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So if that's not a clear enough sign that they're not acting in God's power, I don't know what would be. Seven guys getting whooped up on by one guy with an evil spirit. And that's an extreme example, perhaps... But it's funny to me how often we see something akin to this happen in everyday life, and yet there are many who would continue to believe in the claims of someone who says they have this ability. The proof is in the pudding. And when God gives that ability to someone, it is supernatural, it is clearly evident, it is glorifying to him, and there's no doubt that it's real. So there's joy to be found in serving the Lord according to the direction that he gives and in his power, and that joy will be found regardless of the degree of success we find, whether great or small, which is another point to make in passing, I would argue they did not have a lot of success. Though they had some success, they came back joyous nonetheless. We always are tempted to measure the joy of our ministry, the success in some sense of our ministry by numbers of people. And, you know, if this little experience hasn't taught us anything at all, it should have taught us that we can't measure whether we're doing anything valuable or not merely on the basis of how many people are in the room on a given day. God will work through great and small, to his glory, according to his purpose. We simply are there available to be used in that way. Now, let's look through the verses a little further. In the next verse, Jesus responds with a very intriguing comment. He says, He was there in the beginning to watch the enemy fall from heaven. Now, there are at least a couple of ways to understand what he means here and why he's saying it here. First, it could be that he's simply sharing in the excitement of the messengers, celebrating by relating his own experience of watching the enemy cast down from heaven. So while they were celebrating their victory over the enemy in their day through the power they were given, he sort of joined in that celebration by saying, Yeah, I know how it feels, guys. I was there when he fell from heaven. I've seen it, too. It's great. And in doing that, he's just encouraging them, reminding them that the enemy is subject to God, just like the rest of creation is. He's been around a long time, but he's no less subject to God now than he was in the beginning. As a side note, I'd also say this is one of the many places where you can go clearly in the Gospels to see Jesus declare himself to be God. There are some who clearly don't believe the Gospel message and they take great joy at saying, well, Jesus never came out at any point, even in the Gospels, and said, I am God. And that's so easy to refute if you know the Gospels well. Here's just one of many places you could go that said very clearly, he was there in the beginning with God. He is God. He is not somebody who came along afterward, like all men, but rather he was there at the beginning of creation. But there is a second way to see this comment, and you can see it in a little different light as a means of tempering their excitement, lowering their excitement just a little bit, cautioning them against getting a little too excited about what they just were able to do in the moment. Yeah, you've experienced some success. You've had some limited success over the enemy. That's good. But this battle began long before you joined the fight. Satan and God have been enemies for a lot longer than just this moment. And it's going to continue long after you're gone, in fact. In verse 19, he even tells them that he granted them power over the enemy, even to tread on serpents and scorpions. In other words, he says, I've ensured that your mission is going to be successful. You're not going to be thwarted in contending with the enemy. Your earthly body, in fact, is going to be protected for a time against the threats that might come against it. But he's also going to make the point here, as you look down through these verses, that that is not what their focus should be upon, that the limited success they've been given in this moment against the enemy should not mean that they take him lightly or that they assume that somehow they've turned a corner in their fight against the enemy. There's another example in the early church where God is telling us through the gospel that he granted supernatural immunity like this ability to not be hurt by scorpions or serpents. It's at the end of Mark's Gospel. It's a famous couple of verses. Mark sixteen seventeen. Jesus says, These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons and they will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So let's talk for a moment here about how he transitions to a discussion of these very unusual supernatural abilities in the context Of declaring the kingdom and contending with the enemy. He said for the moment he's going to protect these men in their ministry. Why? Because the success they just had with the enemy is not the end of the story. The enemy's not giving up, and they certainly haven't defeated him. Remain vigilant, remain on guard, be aware that you still have an enemy who is going to contend with you. Meanwhile, I'm going to give you some protection against that enemy against whether it comes at you from a supernatural source or from a natural source. Either way, I'm protecting you for the sake of the ministry I've given you. Similarly, in Mark 16, Jesus says to the, to the men who are going to go out in founding the early church, the apostles, when you accompany, when you come upon a crowd and you find people who believe in that crowd, I'm going to grant, by the power of the Holy Spirit, these kinds of supernatural abilities. So are we looking here at abilities that are Universal? Because after all, that's how these verses in Mark, for example, are often taught. There are whole churches that have been founded on this principle at these last two verses of Mark, where literally they hand snakes out. Poisonous snakes. I often joke with people who are not familiar with this kind of a small church setting, and you know they're used to the big buildings on the corners with the stone cathedrals, and that's their idea of church. And so when we tell them that we do church in this manner, for many that seems a bit odd, to say the least. And I think their imaginations tend to run wild with them in the moment and they tend to imagine all the worst about what kinds of bizarre, extreme things must go on in a little church. And so I tend to let the worst side of me come out in that moment and I tend to feed that for just a second and I typically say, if you show up early, get a seat in the front row so you can get a snake before they all run out. And I've had several people look at me with a look like, is he serious? I I quickly correct them and say, no, no, we, we, we typically run out long before the guests get one. But, you know, that's the kind of thinking that pervades some churches. And those churches are built around these simple ideas that true faith will be proven by the way God or the way Jesus stated it here at the end of Mark. Well, it's a misinterpretation of those verses. And the same misinterpretation can take place in looking at what he's saying here in Luke chapter 10 to these men. When he says, you will not be harmed by serpents, you will not be harmed by scorpions. It's the same basic principle. He's grant, And really, it's the same principle as being able to cast out demons. He's giving specific powers to specific individuals as part of a ministry for a specific purpose. And in the early church, these kinds of powers were granted on a temporary basis for the sake of establishing the early church. I mean, consider how hard it was at the outset of the church for these men to go out and disciple people into the gospel message. I mean, the one you're claiming is God. The one you're claiming has come to establish his kingdom. The one you're claiming has the power to save you from your sin was executed as a criminal on a cross a few years earlier. That's not a very convincing message. That message does not have a lot of weight behind it. It seems wrong on its face. It would require the Holy Spirit, frankly, for anyone to believe it. And to help in that effort... To help those early apostles establish the church, God granted them supernatural ability that supported the purpose of founding the church. Now, I ask you, if that ability had carried through forever, throughout all of time and all believers, in what way would it glorify God? Ultimately, rather than helping establish the church by bringing attention to the power of the message, it would distract from the church by taking your attention off the word and off the gospel and putting it onto the people who have these magical powers. It actually would work counter to God's purpose in growing the church, though it was necessary in the early days to establish the church. What can be a necessary thing in one moment can end up being a detriment later. And God granted it for a time, and he withdrew it at an appropriate point. Furthermore, there's no implication here that these powers would extend to all Christians. There's nothing in the context of what was said in these chapters, in other words, whether in Mark or now again here in Luke, there's nothing in the context that says this will be a universal experience for all time. It was spoken to a certain group at a certain time for a certain purpose. And our history bears that out. If I handed you a poisonous snake right now, would you feel comfortable handling it? Well, trust your good sense then. Don't sit around and question, well, wonder if I'm a believer then. That's absurd. Trust the good sense God put in you to know that that's a dangerous animal. Don't play with it. We sometimes, I think, get so wrapped up in what people will teach us wrongly that we ignore the common sense God has given all of us, never mind the direction of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Now, in the next verse, verse 20, he steps back. And here, as I said a moment ago, he tells these messengers, don't rejoice over these temporary powers. Now, this makes sense when you consider what we just said, that these powers were only coming upon them for a limited time and a limited purpose. He says, don't get excited over these things the point here is don't take your eyes off what's important because he follows by saying the real point is your name's been written in heaven. Now consider these two things in competition with one another. You've been given temporary power to contend with the enemy and to heal sickness and if you think that's what makes being a follower of Jesus worthwhile, then have you not missed the whole point of why he came to earth in the first place so that you might have an opportunity for your name to be recorded in heaven? That was the thing that the powers were granted to achieve in the first place, to bring the message. We don't want to focus over the fact that he's granted us victories over the enemy or our ability to heal supernaturally, because if we do, we're focusing over the means to the end and not the end itself. He says, rejoice because your name is written in heaven. That is what I've come for. And then he speaks this spontaneous prayer to the Father in verses 21 and 22. This is Jesus Spontaneously praying to the Father. And he says, as he prays, that there's this difference. There'll be this distinction among men. He says, the Father is to be praised for revealing the gospel message to the least of the world, rather than to those who profess wisdom. He begins to set up a a dichotomy, a, a, a distinction here between men. There are those who are wise and those who are not. God was content to reveal the truth to those who weren't looking for him and who never saw themselves as righteous, but rather saw themselves as sinners. And he overlooked those who were so wise as to think that they already had the plan for righteousness. Remember how the disciples were selected? We had men in a tax booth. We had men fishing. Were they thinking about how they were righteous? No, in fact, it was exactly the opposite, particularly in the case of Levi in the tax booth. He knew he was unrighteous. He knew he was a sinner. He'd given up hope. He was just going to consort with sinners. Make that his life now. He had no thought that he was somehow righteous and deserving of heaven. That's who Jesus stopped and talked to. Meanwhile, he's confronted by Pharisees day in and day out who think themselves righteous and Christ withholds the truth from them. There's these two groups of people who are now going to become focus for Christ, not only in the rest of this chapter, but over the next two These two groups being those who profess wisdom and those who don't, and how God looks at each group. Those that are proposed to be wise are, of course, the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the day. They claimed to know God and to know how to please him. And then you have those who did not know how to please God and were searching for the truth. He ends this passage by turning to his disciples and reminding them of how special their situation really is. Now, I want you to think about this from a historical perspective. Throughout the history of the nation of Israel, holy men have come generation after generation after generation. And throughout all those generations, those who knew the truth were waiting for the day they might actually see the Messiah come, the one they had been given prophecy about. And these men longed, Jesus said, to be able to see what the disciples saw and to hear what the disciples had heard. And they weren't appointed to that privilege. Only these 12 ordinary men were to receive that honor. Do you see what he's saying here about the humble Chosen over the wise. Think about this. Here are these few unremarkable men selected by God to receive the attention of the Messiah. The Messiah of the world. Of all time, of all history. One Messiah to come on one day. These twelve ordinary men were the ones selected to be in His presence. They didn't do anything to deserve that honor. They were not the smart men of their day. They didn't ask for it. They weren't even praying for it. They didn't care about it. They certainly were not the most ho- holy or pious people in their day. There was, if you had asked me or if I had asked you, who will Jesus pick to be his disciple when he comes, whatever day he chooses to come in his first coming, these 12 men would have not made the top 1,000. Okay? They wouldn't have even been on our list. And these are the ones God chose. In fact, I'll tell you, they didn't even really know who Jesus was until after the resurrection. That's how far out they were. They were not only were not looking for him, they didn't even know who he was until really after the fact. And Jesus here is praising the Father for delighting to reveal himself to that kind of a person, someone who's not looking for him. And it doesn't just apply for the disciples. See, here's the point. This is how the gospel message comes day after day after day after day. The one who is wise in his own estimation, who opens up book after book after book, searches across the world, studies every world religion so that they can come down on the day that they decide and make a final decision, cut it down to the top three, you know, go through a little rack ordering process and then finally decide, ah, it's Christianity, that's the true religion. That person will not find the truth. Now, if they're coming with a pure heart and they desire the Lord and it's not a matter of simply reasoning it but rather asking God to reveal it, that's a different matter. But those who would come like a Pharisee saying, well, let's see, I've got my life in order, I don't sin anymore, I, am, I go to church regularly now, I pray regularly, I do all the things I'm supposed to do, and I've studied everything, so now I feel that I am certainly pleasing God, and I am due heaven. That is the view of a pious, self-righteous Pharisee, and it continues today. There are people walking the earth today who literally feel secure in their eternal future because they've worked it out in their own mind. Jesus says the Father delights to reveal himself to ordinary people and to hide himself from the proud. And I would argue, look around this room, including me. You know, we're probably not the wisest in the world. We're certainly not the most privileged. We aren't a group of people that, to the world's view, they'd want to be a part of this group just because of the sheer magnitude of our personalities and our you know, wisdom. The Father saw fit to bring the gospel message to our hearts and allow him... To be served by us because we fit in that ordinary group, not because we fit into the extraordinary group. And if the thought of that doesn't sink into your heart and cause you to swell up with emotion and gratitude and wonder, then I'm not sure you really understand it because it ought to. It ought to do that for anyone. The God of the universe reaching out to those who had turned their back on him by our very nature. And he softened our hearts and he granted us repentance. And that's what he's telling these disciples, these messengers to celebrate. The fact that they have been given the gospel is the one and only reason to celebrate. You may get some success for a time. You may not after some point in time. The enemy may be subjected to you here but not subjected to you here. Don't worry about that. That's not your measure of success. And that's certainly not your measure for joy. Is your name recorded in heaven? Then you have reason to be joyful. Nothing else matters. Next verse is 1025. A lawyer... Stood up. You know, know, the lawyers always have an objection about this point, right? The lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him. And they went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side but a samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him he felt compassion and he came to him and bandaged up his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them he put them on his own put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him on the next day he took out 2 denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said take care of him and whatever more you spend when i return i will repay you Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. As I said at the beginning, we'll look at this for a moment, but we won't finish it out today. We'll come back into this next week a little. But we can begin by just looking at Jesus' statement to the disciples that preceded this. And now look how it follows into this story. You see how they've come to him now celebrating over these powers they were given. He stops short of, of letting them do that. He says, wait a minute, let's make sure we understand what this is really all about and why you really should be excited. Then he praises the Father for being design, having designed the plan so that those who are ordinary and unsuspecting and unwilling and unworthy were receiving his grace, while those who were proud and haughty and self-made, intelligent, self-righteous so-and-sos were being ignored so that God's glory could be magnified in the weakness of those who receive his grace. And then, immediately after stating that, we have a lawyer who is gracious enough to give us a living example of exactly what he's talking about. And it's apparent from this context that the lawyer was part of the crowd, probably in the earshot of what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Remember, we've said this already, he's never without a crowd anymore. You never want to really imagine a scene anywhere in the gospel going forward from this moment where you don't expect some hangers-on, some crowd nearby. I can't imagine there was many opportunities ever that Christ was fully alone with the disciples, apart from when he entered into Jerusalem and began to receive persecution. And Luke tells us that this lawyer's sole purpose in standing up was to put him to the test. Did you notice that? In verse 25, he stood up and put him to the test. This is not an honest question. You know the difference, right? A question that's designed to really seek information, the person just doesn't know something and they come to you with a legitimate question. There's a big difference between that and someone who's not really seeking new information. Their purpose is to put you to the test. The word lawyer in the Greek, nomikos has a very specific meaning. We have lawyers today, right? When you talk to someone who's a lawyer, their profession is to do what? Is to become an expert in the law. That's why we call them lawyers. They're experts in the law. What law? Well, in our day-to-day, it's the civil and criminal law that guides our society. It's the laws that our legislatures pass. They're an expert in applying and adjudicating those laws. And here we're talking about essentially the same thing, but it's a little bit more complex. Remember, in, the, in the Jewish society in this day, you had the Roman rule, the Roman authorities, and their laws, and their laws were prosecuted by their governors and his staff. And then in the Jewish society, on, on the other hand, you had another whole judicial system separate from the Roman system. That was the Jewish law, the law of Moses. And in order to keep peace, the Roman authorities had granted the Jews the right to practice their own law subject to the Roman law, sort of a law within the law. And as long as they didn't get out of line with the Roman law, they could do anything they wanted in their own law. Now, that meant that you had priests, and you had scribes, and you had Pharisees, and you had lawyers, all within the Jewish bureaucracy, whose job it was to enforce, interpret, adjudicate, prosecute, etc., Jews according to the law of Moses. Now, anytime that process bumped up against Roman law, that's where they found themselves limited. If they wanted to execute somebody because they violated the law of Moses and it called for execution, they couldn't execute. They didn't have the right to do that. Only the Roman authorities had the right to do that. That's why, by the way, the Jewish priests brought Jesus to the Roman authorities and asked them to put him to death, because he had violated the law of Moses in their minds, and they had the right to execute him, though they didn't have the power to do it. They needed the Romans to be complicit in that. But back to this moment, you have a lawyer, a man who therefore is learned in the law of Moses. How do I put a lawyer out of business? I take away the law. No law, no need for lawyers. Similarly, in this day, if the law of Moses were to ever go away, this man would be out of a job. Not not just a job, he'd be out of his power and influence and authority in the culture. And so you have this lawyer, easily to be considered one of the wise of Jesus' day. If we want to talk about these two kinds of people, the wise and the not-so-wise, he's definitely going to be in that group that the world would have seen as wise, self-informed. He knew what God wanted and how to please God. And in this case, therefore, he's a living example of exactly the kind of person Jesus just said the Father was not content to reveal himself to. And so he stands up and he tries to tear down Jesus. We might ask ourselves... Why is God unwilling to reveal himself to this man? Because after all, you could turn this whole thing on its head and you could say, well, wait a minute, Steve, wait a minute, wait a minute. If there was ever a man who needed the gospel message, who needed to know the truth, isn't this loser the kind of guy we'd be thinking about? A man who's trying to tear down Jesus' ministry? A man who doesn't understand the gospel? He doesn't understand where true righteousness comes from? He's all wrapped up in himself? That's the kind of guy who should know the truth, isn't it? Why would God not want to reveal Himself to a man like that? Isn't His zealousness, after all, a sign of His desire to know God? To be godly? That's why He's so zealous for the law. To be godly. So why don't we turn that zealousness into a zealousness for the right thing? That would seem like the right thing to do. Why does God say He's not delighting in doing that? The Apostle Paul discusses this question of a man who is zealous for the law, but unwilling to submit himself to God. Paul addresses this in his letter to the Romans. Look what he says at the beginning of chapter 10. 10 verse 1. In talking about the Jews who are not receiving the gospel, Paul says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, they seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul starts by saying he's sympathetic to us when we wonder why a man like this is not receiving God's grace, why the nation of Israel as a whole is not being converted to believe in their Messiah. He's sympathetic. He says, I'd love to see that happen. And he says, zealous Jews, men like this lawyer, are the kind of men he would love to see be saved. But he goes on to say that these men, in fact, do not have the right kind of religious zeal about them. The zeal they have is not in accordance with knowledge. With truth, in other words. They are zealous, in other words, for the wrong thing. Now, here's an important thing for us to understand as we end today. You can be zealous and be zealous for the wrong thing, and in so doing, you're not pleasing God. I think sometimes we feel like we should get, enough, we should get some credit for effort. You know, we, we should have some credit with God simply because we're trying hard. That's not how the formula works. There's no formula. You can't do it in any sense. This man's zealousness was not for the right thing. What was he zealous for? Was he zealous for God and he just had the wrong approach? That's not what Paul says. He says they didn't understand God's righteousness. They didn't understand true righteousness. So what did they do instead? They sought to establish their own. Because God has not revealed to me how righteousness is to come, I'm going to go make up my own. They have their own salvation by a system of rules, by the law and how they applied it. And they created their own system so that it served their own selfish interests. Do you understand that's how this worked for the lawyer and for the Pharisee and for anyone else in that day who tried to live out the law? Those who prosecuted the law the way the Pharisees and lawyers did couldn't care less about God. Their interest in performing what they did under the law was self-serving. It created a power structure for them. It created a seat of authority for them. It gave them a high for being able to control people's lives through how they had applied the law. And then when someone like Jesus comes along and starts to declare things that would put an end to the law, you see Paul said that in chapter 10, verse 4, he says, it is the end of the law for those who believe. Well, wait a minute, I'm a lawyer. You're telling me the law goes away if I believe in you? I don't think this is good for me. I don't think this helps me. So now all of a sudden, I'm going to have trouble with it. I'm going to put Jesus to the test. I'm going to look for ways to tear him down. Christ is the end of the law. The righteousness that Christ brings by faith means the end of the law for all who believe. And God is not satisfied to bring glory to those who think they have earned it in their own power. He frustrates them to leave them as an example. As we end today, and we'll come back, as I said, next week and study more the, the meaning of what God's giving through Jesus' parable of the Samaritan on the side of the road. I want to leave you with a few verses out of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 4. And I want us to look at these verses as we end today simply for the purpose of examining our own hearts a little bit. For though we may be a believer, pride is still not outside the reach of the human heart, even after faith. And that pride can creep in and make us less effective in ministry, principally because we begin to serve our own interests rather than God's. Look what Isaiah says in chapter 2, verse 9. In 2, 9, he says, "...so the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased, but do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day." For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. This exchange that God, that Jesus had with this lawyer, and the one we'll look at next week, it sets up an important conflict for the rest of the series, the next series of chapters, in the gospel is going to set up this battle that Jesus himself wages and then eventually turns over to the disciples. A battle for the hearts of men, and it's the same one we wage today. We confront men, men like this lawyer, who have ideas of their own on how to please God. And they have devised their own ways of righteousness. They have Zen, this and that, they have Nirvana, whatever, they have Buddha, they have whatever they've called it. And they've devised their own means of pleasing God to serve their own interests. And we're going to come up against men like this as the disciples did, as Jesus did. And we're going to bring them a message that says, if you're proud and self-sure, you'll have no place in the kingdom of God. If you humble yourself and understand the message of the gospel is to, by faith alone, enter into his glory, then you can be a member of the family of God, a child of God. And they will have to be brought low before they can be raised up. But if they will not be brought low, if they will be proud and self-assured as this man is, then they will not understand the truth and they will be left to their pride so that they may be judged rightly for it. Remember how we were before that moment? If you came to faith as an adult as I did, then you remember when, when we were haughty, when we were sure, when we were confident, and then one day God brought us to our knees and reminded us of how lacking we were apart from Him? And now we look back and we realize we were not wise, we were not honorable, we were certainly not holy and righteous, and we still aren't. Though God is determined by his grace to credit us with righteousness that is not our own. That message is what we bring to those we meet who are proud. Whether it has its intended success or not, we glorify not in our success, but in our name written in heaven. And to his glory, we thank him for that. Father, I thank you so much that we were able to take time in your word this morning and understand the power of the gospel to bring those who are humble into the family of God. Thank you, Lord, that we were one of those. I pray, Father, that for those who are hearing this prayer and maybe feeling in their heart a question mark, a doubt in their own mind as to whether or not they have truly humbled themselves before you, I pray, Father, they would give a moment's thought to this message And even now, as you may be pulling on their heart, that the Holy Spirit, Father, might be teaching them that a humble heart, a willingness to admit their sin, a recognition they cannot work themselves into your grace, would motivate them, Father, to consider for a moment whether they have truly come to understand the gospel. And perhaps now, Father, is their opportunity. If it is, Father, the case that you are working in the heart of someone who's hearing this message, I pray, Father, that. You would draw them to you as only you can. That they would understand that apart from you, there is no hope. There is no salvation. There is but one name given under heaven by which man may be saved. It is your son, Jesus. And that his death on the cross, Father, was payment for their sin. Yet it is a gift waiting for their acceptance. And I pray, Father, they would have the heart. They would have the courage. They would have the meekness to accept that gift. Not knowing what will happen next, not knowing, Father, how you will call them or use them, not sure, Father, of what it all means, but knowing in this moment that that call is on them and that they might respond. Father, if that is happening, I do pray now that they would have the courage not just to confess in their hearts by prayer, Lord, that they are sinners and desiring your grace and receiving, Father, of your mercy, but I pray, Father, they would have the courage to speak it to someone, Father, to make known in public, to profess with their mouth what they believed in their hearts. And that by doing so, give you glory for your work. May that moment come now, Father. And for those, Father, who may have done that prayer and believed that gift of salvation, I pray, Father, that you would make them known to us so that we may minister to them. And in all that we've done here this morning, I pray it would be pleasing to you that the word spoken, Father, would be true and according to your will. And that in the work you have waiting for us outside in the week to come, we would be Worthy of that work, Father. We would give ourselves over to it. And that, Father, we would glorify you in all that we do. Thank you, Lord, you've gathered us in this way. May our week to come, Father, be further opportunity to declare the truth of your gospel and to build the kingdom. And then in the Sunday to come, Father, may we gather again in your name. According to your will, I pray in Jesus' name.